Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers with your gumboots on. Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Good day, everyone. Thanks for being here on Countrywide. I'm Hannah Joes speaking to you from Dubbo, and I have got a packed half an hour for you. We're talking a spiny pest that's ravaging the seafloor in southeastern Australia. We've got a global perspective on dairy and how that might affect Aussie farmers. And we're also going to cover off some animal rights concerns and how these thorny issues are affecting industries like grain farmers and, if you'll believe it, lobster fishers. Yes, we're talking rights for marine life. So stay with me and let's get into it. First off, we're heading to central Queensland where there's pineapples for days as the unusual seasonal conditions have caused unusual growing. Pineapple farmers are urging people to head to the supermarket and pick up a pineapple or three. Tons of fruit is already going to be left to rot in paddocks because farmers just can't pick them fast enough before they ripen. A mass natural flowering event caused every growing region to come online at once, rather than having staggered fruiting as is normally the case. Central Queensland grower Ben Clifton explains to our reporter Megan Hughes the unseasonal conditions that have caused this. Well, this season's like no other we've ever experienced, and we seem to be saying that just about every year now. We had a really, really cool, wet July period. Here in Yapoon, we, we're well known for our beautiful winters, but we had a week where five days didn't get over 12 degrees and it drizzled rain. And uh, pineapples being a tropical fruit really, really didn't appreciate those weather conditions. So they went into a stress mode and, and a high percentage of them have flowered naturally. So what that means is all those pineapples that were cold with wet feet have uh, shot up a fruit and that's now ready for harvest. Now, that didn't only happen in Yapoon. It happened to the north of us. It happened to the south of us. You know, the guys on the Sunshine Coast, they'll be ramping up in the next week or two to, to reach their harvest peak. I guess last week was probably our harvest peak and we, um, we're, we're tapering out now. It's not that we haven't got more fruit to pick, it's that the fruit's getting more mature than, than what we're able to um, sell and you know, provide a good product to consumers with. Could you break that down, what that's going to mean for the fruit? I think my tally was about 887,000 pineapples went flowered naturally so we've got a window of about five weeks where we need to get across our 400 acre farm and cover all those blocks that have been affected by the natural flowering so 887,000 pineapples in a five-week period is uh, it's an unachievable task um, with the ability to find staff these days has mean that we've been stuck to uh, only running one harvest crew I've got enough guys on the books to run two harvest crews, but we can't get them here for whatever reason. Enough on one day to to fill two crews to allow us to get across the ground further. Now, since uh, Christmas, there's been an influx of backpackers and that's helping. We're able to get, you know, we're able to maintain one crew to keep it going. Getting guys on the ground to help us um, get the fruit picked is, is probably challenge number one outside the sheer volume of, of fruit and that volume has a flow-on effect in a supply and demand market where you know our agents at the central markets our guys at chain stores and things they're doing a really good job to um, create awareness with consumers they're, they're selling pineapples well they're marketing them well you know and the fruit is fantastic quality at the moment so i think the you know the buy two pineapple campaign is going really well because people are getting great quality fruit coming back getting another couple of pineapples so i would say our natural crop will be done and dusted 
whether we harvest them or not, by mid to late next week. That'll probably look at something like oh, 200,000 pineapples unpicked or, or picked and rejected. So that's, uh, that's pretty hard, uh, hard to deal with um, out here because, you know, obviously the growing costs, uh, cost of our inputs, diesel, fertiliser, um, staff, all, all um, increased astronomically in the last 12 to 18 months. Uh, it just, it's just another bite into what we do here. Is that, a, would you say, about a quarter of your crop? Round figures, about a quarter of our natural crop will go unharvested. In every direction I look, I can see coloured pineapples that won't be uh, won't be eaten. That's challenging. Now, the the good news is there's still millions of plants out here that didn't flower naturally, which will you know will have able to be harvested over the next 12 to 18 months. Um, it's just probably our next three month period where the uh, where the, the Australia's pineapple market will just be probably a little bit short of where it wants to be. That was Central Queensland pineapple grower Ben Clifton talking to Megan Hughes about the pineapple predicament he's in. And now that we've established we're all buying pineapples, let's change tack a little bit. Let's talk about a pest you may not have realised is a pest, the sea urchin. The long-spined sea urchin, to be exact, and it is an invasive species all along the southeast coast. Hobart reporter Madeline Rohan was at a two-day workshop looking into how exactly to stop these spiny little critters from spreading. Scientists from around Australia and overseas, like the US, Japan and New Zealand, attended the workshop in Launceston to try and pin down a strategy. It's really similar to what's been seen in Tasmania, other than the fact that in New Zealand it is a native species. It's, it's always been there, but in low numbers. So, but with the warming temperatures, there's obviously been an increase in recruitment. Yeah, I'm, I'm Yukinori uh, from uh, North Japan. Northern Japan, yes. And what's brought you here to the Urchin Conference all the way from Japan? We have a new sea urchin cultivation system. We are developing with Hokkaido University in Japan. Sea urchin is so versatile, like you can use it in anything. Given that we're at the um, conference here to try to tackle the issue of invasive urchins, um, which is quite a it's a global issue what role can processors like yourself have in this our processors play a huge role in uh, combating the huge populations of the central long spine sea urchin we're the ones that are buying them all and creating the demand you know for the divers to go get them so uh, our role is huge uh, Ali Kendelmo I'm conservation science manager at reef environmental education foundation and obviously we have the problem with the long-spine sea urchin here. What could we learn from your practices over there? Um, I do think uh, sort of some a collaborative approach that allows for the commercial market to expand but then brings in recreational divers to potentially remove urchins in areas that commercial divers aren't going or don't want to go or the the urchins aren't really viable there. Um, And then also marine protected areas where commercial divers won't be allowed to fish. Um, That could be a nice kind of collaborative approach. Plus the community involvement really brings up, brings the attention of the problem to the media often. You can use derby events to attract the media and then bring other funding sources through from local sponsors, you know, and so that helps kind of forge the management effort as well. In one way, it's a very strange feeling because um, what I suppose from an Indigenous perspective 
I'm trying to do is put across a perspective of um, cultural knowledge um, in regards to what um, Centro has and how Centro has actually impacted um, the east coast of Australia. From our perspective on the east coast, the urchant has has created all sorts of problems when it comes to um, our cultural sites um, where we traditionally dive and um, we've got um, a lot of concerns about um, that sort of invasion and and how it actually transpired. Um, So we're at a point now where we're going, we've got to do something about this for our kids' sake um, because um, we've noticed fish stocks have actually decreased so it, it, is a, it is a real concern to us and um, we need to actually have a seat at the table. Now this has been a great conference. I really appreciate being invited. I've learned a lot, but like, there are a lot of parallels between the two. So I'm yeah, happy to give my wisdom on how to run an urchin derby in the future. <laughs> I'd <laughs> love to see it. Tasmania for that. <laughs> Your new job. Yes, for sure. <laughs> That was scientist Ali Kendelmo at the end of that report by Madeline Rohan at a two-day workshop to figure out how to defeat the invasive sea urchin. Now, we all know Australia has been in something of a trade war with China and its giant economy. We've seen bans on coal, some meat companies and massive tariffs on grain and wine. But amazingly, dairy exports to China have been a shining light in this gloomy period. So why is China continuing this long honeymoon with our dairy industry? Country Hours' David Clawton spoke to Dairy Australia about what the long-term policy is and what is really driving this rosy relationship with the country. Here's Dairy Australia's dairy analyst John Droppett to explain. <clears throat> that was dairy analyst John Droppett from Dairy Australia, you just heard, talking to David Clawton. Well, dairy industry uh, in, in China has a, uh, a, a rich history, really, and, and we often forget here they um, actually produce over 35 billion litres of milk um, in, you know, in China, uh, compared with a, uh, a bit over 8 billion here in Australia. So they have a really significant industry, and uh, and, and as, as with most things in China, the scale there is is something you really have to see to uh, uh, see to believe. Um, you know, food security is you know is the is one of the you know the underpinning factor there. You know, there's a real um, you know focus from the you know from the Chinese government in, in, in you know societal stability, political stability, and you know if people are uh, people are well fed, then that's one less thing for them to uh, get upset about. I think that's a, that's a universal truth. So um, food safety being a part of it, you know, being uh, you know people get upset when their kids are uh, you know poisoned. That's again a universal truth. And so what we've seen, um, you know, pushing towards that, some of the key drivers around the Chinese industry have been um, a, a move towards encouraging larger scale farms, um, in, you know, encouraging, um, you know, fewer farms that are larger in a more formalised, um, you know, dairy market, I suppose, as opposed to, you know, your traditional uh, one or two cow operations, uh, you know, backyard, if you like, sort of farms. And so over, over the last, um, you know, decade and a half really we've seen this uh, push towards larger farms and and that's been we're part talking of the massive too. farms aren't we i mean I'm yeah we're talking you know you know day. thousand cows plus um you know m- often much larger than that uh, it's easier to supervise it's easier to control it's easier to manage and so you know it's a different philosophy to protecting food safety i guess coming from um you know come they're obviously coming from a different uh, sort of history and different background now australia um, to us. australia's been exporting heifers to, to China for a long time as well, like live animals, is that right? 
Absolutely, yeah, China's our biggest destination for for live dairy uh, live dairy heifers. Um, you know, it has been for again over a decade, and um, yeah, the dominant the dominant destination is as the Chinese industry you know tries to build up its um, you know its herd genetic um, uh, potential and and grow those larger operations. Obviously, the sort of livestock that are suited to those um, high production uh, operations are are very different. Uh, to to those that are suited to a again a, a backyard or a small scale dairy uh, operation. But there's also that element of risk, isn't there? That we might end up exporting a lot of our genetics and and ultimately be competing with them. Is that also possible that they might end up be a competitor to, to us in some of our key markets, or or ultimately just supplant you know our product because they're producing their own? Yeah, it's you know, obviously you know, every every liter of milk produced, um, you know, in, in China is one less liter they require importing from somewhere else. You know, are we selling a, a comparative advantage? I suppose it's not a surprising yeah. question because they've done it in many other sectors, haven't they? They've taken electronic technology and computer technology and and ultimately turned around their own their own products and dominated markets that way. Yeah, certainly, and and you know, arguably, uh, you know, we, we're competing heavily with Europe, from which uh, most of our dairy cows originally came as well. So we're uh, we're, we're in some ways an example of that. But, um, but I guess two things I'd, I'd say about that is, uh, um, firstly, that they're going to get those genetics from somewhere anyway. You know, Australia's not unique in the sense of the uh, you know the genetics it has available and the, and the quality of its livestock. I think we're certainly in the top tier worldwide, but we haven't cornered the market um, in in those. But probably. More importantly, um, you know, I think we probably have to back ourselves a bit as well in the sense that the Chinese dairy industry has some real challenges that will be very, very difficult to overcome even in the longer term. And that particularly around, um, you know, cost structure and, you know, the ability to um, to supply feed to those cows. It's, uh, you know, pasture-based dairying is uh, one of the most competitive, cost-competitive ways to produce milk. Um, and, we, and we do that really well in Australia. It's, it's not the way these... Um, these enterprises are set up in China. It's not the way their industry is structured, and they're always going to be bringing in feed. It's always going to cost them uh, a lot to produce milk. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Staying with the dairy industry, there's been a new development in New Zealand where milk giant Fonterra has ordered its Kiwi suppliers to stop euthanizing bobby calves on farm. Bobby calves are usually young male calves under 30 days old that are surplus to milking herds and they're considered surplus because they serve no marketable purpose and they're usually separated from their mothers. From June this year, New Zealand suppliers to Fonterra will be forced to instead raise the calves to an older age or send them to an abattoir following animal cruelty concerns. Now, Kirstine Cately has worked in the dairy industry in New Zealand and in Australia for over 30 years. She's the owner of Port Ferry Beef in southwest Victoria and general manager of investments with Prime Value Dairy. She raises dairy beef on a farm in a bid to improve animal welfare, but says the mid-year deadline would be impossible for most farmers to meet. What they're saying is that they've got to have a useful life. So a useful life is, you know, reared for beef, um, slaughtered as veal or pet food. Now, you could argue, but the last two of those options doesn't sound that useful. And then, you know, moving on from that, so um, if you have to keep calves on farm for a longer period of time, obviously that creates a whole lot of um, issues. And this is one that I'm grappling with ourselves as a company. So at the moment, we keep 25% of our replacements. Those are heifers. They come back into our herd. The rest of our calves, we rear a proportion of beef calves. 
some are sold as bobby calves and some are sold to backgrounders to um, other calf rearers. If farmers have to go from rearing 25% of their calves on farm to rearing 100% of their calves on farm, that takes infrastructure. So it takes, you know, the um, calf shed space and calf sheds and it takes labour. So those are things that take time, to, A, to build or, or to get. And then obviously if you're rearing those animals as a beef calf, you need additional land to be able to do that as well. Being from New Zealand yourself, do you think that there is the infrastructure possible to get this done by just a few months down the track from now? Not a hope in hell excuse my language, but no, no, definitely not. So we're talking, you know, um, for example, I'm building calf sheds at the moment. We're building calf sheds at the moment in Tasmania. We've just accepted some quotes and we're earliest we can get those calf sheds built um, are May. So ours will be up before we start calving in August. But if I went to a builder now, I mean, I locked that in a few weeks ago. If I went to a builder now in Western Victoria and tried to get someone to build a calf shed, which I did a couple of months ago, he's booked out for a year. So there is, you know, you just wouldn't, you know what it's like in the building industry at the moment, getting materials, it's impossible, and getting and getting labour. So if, if I wanted to build a new calf shed on, on any of our farms in Victoria at the moment for us to start calving in May or in spring, I wouldn't be able to do it for 12 months. So in New Zealand, it'll be exactly the same. There's a shortage of labour, the tradies are all busy, um, shortage of steel, you know, you've got to order things and everything. So um, I'm surprised that they haven't, you know, given a bit longer lead-in time, like say, you know, over the next two years, we're phasing out this, you know, and, and we want to bring it in sort of in two years' time. So it's going to be very tricky. Have you spoken to any of your farmer friends from New Zealand? How are they feeling about this? They're a little bit behind, I think, as far as raising calves for beef go in New Zealand. I, I know one corporate that I have a bit to do with, and they, they're only just starting to put beef breeds over their, over their sort of cows and look at what beef breeds they can use. So whereas we started that, you know, five years ago and, and longer personally. So I think that some of the big corporates might be a little bit slower. It's very difficult to buy land in New Zealand. You know, some of these big corporate farms are owned by um, institutional investors. It's foreign investment. There's no foreign, you can't buy land in New Zealand if you're a foreign investor. You can't own up any more than 25%. So if they wanted to go and, if they, for example, if they're already milking 12,000 cows and their investors as a pension fund in Canada or something, they can't go and buy a runoff block to rear beef. And so I did have that conversation, actually. I was in Christchurch a couple of months ago. And that's exactly what they envied us because we can actually go and buy land and, you know, rear beef on it where they don't even have that option. They can't buy a runoff block. It's very difficult um, with interest rates going up and, you know, the cost of funding and the price of land. It's uneconomical to go and buy land to rear dairy beef on if you don't even know what you're going to sell the market, sell the product for. So I'm running into this issue at the moment. You know, I've got 800 head of um, beef calves at the moment and I'm just, you know, I'm making inquiries about selling some of them in Tasmania. And they probably average about 220 kgs weight. The local meatworks has just come back to us and, you know, they would buy them to finish, to background, to give to background farmers. They won't buy them under 340 kgs. So I've got to find somewhere for those calves to go to. So I believe we've got to start at the other end. We've actually got to say, what's the market for dairy beef? And what's the product we've got? What's the market for dairy beef? Find a market for it, develop the product, develop the taste with our consumers and then filter that back through the system rather than rear all these thousands of animals who potentially haven't got anywhere to go or haven't got a consumer to eat them. That was the owner of Port Ferry Beef in southwest Victoria, Kirstine Cately, speaking with Jane McNaughton. 
All right, so we've covered the sea urchin problem, we've taken a bit of a tour around the world, and now we're landing right back in Australia for another animal cruelty concern. Now, the Animal Welfare Act is being reviewed in South Australia, and the RSPCA is demanding the inclusion of currently overlooked marine life. That's fish, cephalopods, and crustaceans. They are not part of the act at the moment. Dr. Rebecca Ayres is an animal welfare advocate for RSPCA South Australia. She told our reporter Elsie Adamo that the state needs to get in line with the other states. The RSPCA believes that fish, crustaceans and cephalopods should all be protected uniformly right across Australia under animal welfare law. The science has found they are sentient, they are deserving of our legal protection and they should be protected uniformly regardless of their different uses and their different locations. And we think this is one of the most urgent changes that is needed. South Australia really needs to catch up with some of the other states that already have these reforms. Um, So that's New South Wales, Victoria, the Northern Territory and the ACT. All of those states recognise some fish, some cephalopods and some crust stations under their Animal Welfare Act and give them some protection. So you just want to see South Australia at least make some step forward in this area? There is a community expectation that the animal welfare regulator will have the power to respond and investigate if there is an allegation of cruelty for fish, for cephalopods and for crustaceans. Other states have it, we don't. The benefits of including fish, cephalopods and crustaceans in South Australia's Animal Welfare Act are many. Most important benefit is that we would be meeting the public expectation. The community do expect that these species will have some animal welfare protection. But it will also increase the state's capacity to respond to cruelty allegations that involve all of these fish, cephalopods and crustaceans. It will also more accurately reflect the scientific evidence. And what would you say to those who might be concerned that any change in the laws around this issue might impact the way that they fish or change how they might go about it in a negative way? There's actually no significant evidence in the states that have already introduced the reform, New South Wales, Victoria, the Northern Territory and the ACT. There is no significant evidence that these have negatively impacted their fishing industries whatsoever. Executive Officer of the South Australian Northern Zone Rock Lobster Fishermen's Association, Kyriakos Tomazos, said he would welcome a review into potentially adding lobsters and other sea life into the Act. We always support reviews of uh, best practices and uh, in the rock lobster area we have been basically working on this for probably three decades now and uh, our the practices that we follow have been clearly designed by experts in, in order to make sure that the animal husbandry that we use in holding live lobster of excellent quality. That's an area that we have been working collaboratively with, with the different scientific organisations to make sure that we have world's best practice. And what are some of those practices? Basically, we make sure that our water quality is exceptional. We make sure that we have uh, extremely healthy holding tanks. We have extremely you know, robust monitoring programs to make sure that the water uh, levels as far as uh, pH, acidity or anything else that we need to be aware of is of excellent standards. So we make sure that we look after rock lobster in the best possible way we can. 
Right. So for you and others in the industry, maybe a change in these laws would be more just bringing the laws up to speed with what industry is already doing. Would you say that's correct? I would say that the industry has already been uh, extremely proactive in this space. For As I said, we've been doing this for nearly four decades now. So, uh, yeah, it's more about, I think, you, you know, with what's going to eventuate is going to be basically the laws will basically adapt to the world's best practice that the industry is already using. And while uh, the professionals in industry have pretty good practices, from what you've observed from recreational fishermen when it comes to, to craze and lobster, are there any concerns there? Would you like to maybe see them improve their practices a little bit? I think that uh, all recreational fishers should be uh, looking at what the commercial sector is doing and uh, we're happy to uh, to be part of that education journey. So, yeah, I think that the recreational fishers, as long as they adapt practices that are followed by the commercial sector, will have no problems with uh, maintaining the best animal husbandry we can. That was Kyria Kostamazis from the South Australian Northern Zone Rock Lobster Fishermen's Association speaking with Elsie Adamo. That's very interesting, isn't it, to hear from the lobster industry about how they're working to make lobsters more comfortable? Absolutely fascinating. Now, farmers in Victoria have been crying foul. They've been saying there's an overabundance of ducks that are destroying their crops and they want to be able to continue to hunt them in the face of repeated calls for the Victorian government to ban duck hunting. So is the duck population actually increasing? Well, the scientist who works on the Eastern Australia Waterbird Survey each year says that overall, the numbers of waterbirds are actually going down. And that's despite the recent floods and wet seasons. Professor Richard Kingsford is the director of the Centre for Ecosystem Science, and he actually told our reporter Annie Brown that the main reason for the loss of ducks we're seeing is a pattern of long-term habitat loss. Yeah, so we've been, I guess, counting waterbirds across about 2,000 wetlands, way up in Queensland, across to the Northern Territory border, and then all the way down to south of Melbourne. We run these survey bands that we do each year, and not only do we count all the game ducks of the game duck species, but also all waterbirds, so everything from swans to pelicans. And I guess um, over that period, we've seen about a 60 to 70% decline in overall waterbird numbers, including many of the duck species. And a lot of that we've identified as due to habitat loss and degradation, you know, the, the reduction in flooding of the wetlands that these birds breed and feed in. What are, you, what are you seeing, though, in terms of this year now that we've had all these floods at the moment? Are we seeing a, a spike in numbers? Well, we've seen a bit of a bounce back in numbers from last year, but not a huge bounce. And, and we weren't really expecting that. Uh, as many people will know, um, there's water everywhere across the Murray-Darling and there's a bit of flooding even in the Lake Air Basin and obviously up and down the coast with this third La Nina year, um, what that does is means it creates a lot of wetland area for all of the waterbirds to feed and breed in. So one of the things we have identified during our surveys last year was widespread breeding and um, not just you know the obvious ones like pelicans and swans and ibis, but 
also quite a lot of duck species breeding and we, we don't really pick them up given we're doing aerial surveys. Um, but we would expect in the next couple of years to see a bounce back of, of numbers of waterbirds, including game ducks. One of the things that most people perhaps don't know is that even if you do have a ban, there's quite a bit of duck shooting still goes on in for sort of pest mitigation purposes. And certainly in the rice growing areas in New South Wales, that continues. Um, I think the the other sort of area of concern is um, once a sort of emotive issue and sort of headline issue like this doesn't have quite the same sort of political um, impact that there isn't the focus of the public on, you know, what's happening to these birds. Professor Richard Kingsford there having a chat with Annie Brown about the state of the duck populations in Victoria. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have on Countrywide Today. I'm Hannah Joes, and you can read more about all these stories on abc.net.au slash rural. Catch you next time.